turn together to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, as we continue to go chapter by chapter. And it seems that each week as we go, there is yet another foundational theme that we find. The book of Genesis is a rich book. It is the book of beginnings for a reason. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 8, the middle, as it were, of the Noah story. Last week we looked at the flood. This week we look at the flood subsiding. And next week we'll look at God's covenant that he makes with Noah. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative word. Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, 
Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would teach us to trust you, that you would teach us to honor you, that you would show us, O Lord, our great need of a Savior. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the type of story that you really need to enter into to understand. You really need to put yourself in the place of Noah and his family. I think so that we can really understand what God is doing in Genesis chapter 8. It helps if you use your thumb. Take your thumb. And put it over the very big number 8 between chapter 7 and 8. Because you know those are modern, relatively speaking, inventions. The Bible did not have chapter and verse division. And so if we look here, the end of chapter 7 ends, And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah. You see, those two verses go together. We have to understand what is going on here. As Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives floated in this coffin-like barge, day after day, seeming completely out of control, you'll notice... There is no description in the Bible of how Noah was to build the steering wheel or the rudder or anything else that he would be in control. No, Noah was shut up in the ark with his family day after day, week after week, month after month. Noah was in this ark with his family for more than a year. And during that time, he learned and he knew what it was like to trust the Lord. This morning, I would like us to see three things from Noah's story and this great ark. Three R's to help us remember. 
First, we see that Noah is remembered. He's remembered by God. Second, we see that the world for Noah is restored. Restored by God. And then lastly, we see Noah's response to the work of the Lord in his midst. Remembered, restored, and a response. Well, let's begin then by thinking about Noah being remembered. In order to be remembered, something has to happen, right? No one talks about being membered. You're remembered. But in order to be remembered, you must be, in some sense, forgotten. Or at least you think you are forgotten. You remember where you left your keys after they are lost. If they're not lost, you don't remember them. You just have them. And so Noah is here in the ark, perhaps thinking a question that maybe you ask in your own life. Are we forgotten? Are we forgotten by the Lord? Because you see, when we are not amongst the brothers and the sisters, when we are not putting on our best face at church, when we are not standing strong for our children, we need to understand that oftentimes in the darkness of our soul, we are tempted to think that God forgets us. When things don't go our way, when we don't understand the circumstances around us, when we are faced with new and scary challenges, we think that God is just leaving us to ourselves. We think about this with our nation, don't we? We wonder what life will be like for our grandchildren. We wonder how much longer our nation will survive after the sorts of upheavals that it has been through. We wonder about the church, don't we? We often look at the church as a small, battered army. We think of ourselves as perhaps a bit like Custer's force on Little Round Top. No, Little Bighorn. (laughs) Surrounded by enemies, hoping that the ammunition holds out, hoping that we can just barely survive until Jesus comes back. I think most often, though, personally... We think ourselves that we are forgotten. That there's a silence from the Lord. We long to hear from Him, to hear that everything will be all right. Everything will just work out fine. And then we could breathe a sigh of relief. But the truth is that oftentimes God does not break into our lives to tell us week after week that everything will be okay. That the sickness will go away. That the children will grow up normal and well-adjusted. That they will get married, that they will have children, that everything will work out okay. Now, oftentimes, we're met with a kind of stony silence in which God leaves us to trust Him. And that is what Noah felt day upon day upon day. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the Bible, God speaks to Noah twice in bookends. He says in chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1, Go into the ark. Then, he says later in this chapter, go out of the ark. Have you thought about the fact that between these short sections, a year of life has passed in which God has left Noah silent in the ark? I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait a day or two for things. 
I'm famous in my family that about, I can't stand any of these new lights that have gone up in Katy. Because to me, I'm sure every time I stop at a light, it's at least 10 or 15 minutes. And I don't understand why these lights need to be so long, because I've got places to go. And my family assures me, by looking at the clock, that it's only been one or two minutes. But you see, we don't like to wait, do we? We don't like to wonder. We like God to break in and tell us what is going on. And that is what Noah would feel. And what Noah needed to rely upon is the same thing that you need to rely upon, is knowing who is in control. Who's steering the ark? Who's floating the ark? The very flood itself shows that God is in complete control. No one, no organization... No army, no nation can stand up before the living God. If God is for you, who can be against you? God is in control. Every day that Noah would wake up in the silence, he would know that God was at work because he was alive where others were not. Do you have that feeling each morning? As you wake up, you who know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, in the midst of all of your trials, all of your difficulties, aches, pains, do you know that God is for you? Because Jesus has worked for you. Jesus has redeemed you. We think we are forgotten, but we have to remember that God remembers. Chapter 8 begins this way. God remembered Noah. And this idea of remembering is more than our idea of remembering. It's not how we remember. It's not just information, like how we remember a phone number or an address. There's no need for God to have a reminder. Some of you perhaps have post-it notes all over your home to remind you of various things. God doesn't need that. Perhaps you have experienced the pain of remembering just a little bit too late. God doesn't remember too late. God remembers Noah, and this kind of remembrance is a remembrance that involves action. We see that here from the text. Look with me at verse 1. God remembers, and because He remembers, He made a wind blow over the earth. And then, the heavens were closed up in verse 2. And then the rain was restrained in verse 3. God is acting here. He remembers Noah and he acts upon this. Because you see, that is God's nature. The Lord's nature is to remember his people and to act upon it. And we can count on that. He does this for the benefit of others. We'll see in months to come. In Genesis 19, that God remembered Abraham. And because he remembered Abraham, he scooped down into Sodom and rescued Lot. Because he remembered. God remembers his people and delivers them from their own trials. You may recall at the beginning of Exodus, before Moses was the great Redeemer, before the Red Sea was parted, before the angel of death came over Egypt, before any of that, it tells us in Exodus 2 that God remembered His people. And because He remembered, He set about to rescue them. 
There's another aspect to this remembering, though, that we need to think on. God doesn't just remember the big things of the world. Nations, peoples, great events. There are two other wonderful instances in the Bible of God remembering, and they are both of ladies. They're both involving births. Rachel in Genesis 30 and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, we see that God remembers the most intimate of details, the most individual of people, because he knows these things matter to us. He remembered these people. God remembered Noah, and God remembers you, Christian. God not only remembered Noah, but Noah came to a world that was restored. We see this here as the wind blows and the windows of heaven are closed and the rain ceases. Then the world begins the work of being restored by God. Now, the first thing that we see here is that this restoration is not a quick and obvious process. We might call it here restored in hope. That is, no one knew from God's promise that the world would be restored, but it wasn't incredibly evident right away. It was something he had to hope for, something he had to trust that the Lord was doing. And so Noah is for us a model of great patience. Again, imagine living in this ark for one year. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're all thinking, well, what would it be like to live a year with goats and elephants and tigers and alligators and everything else? That's not what I want you to think about because that's sort of fanciful. I want you to imagine living in an area about a quarter of this size for an entire year with your in-laws and your children. And you can't get in the car and take a break. And you can't go for a walk. And you can't stretch your legs and get some exercise. You can't go jogging. You are there in that spot day after day after day after day. And you can just imagine what that would be like. You can imagine how that would try the patience, we might say proverbially, of Job. This is a patient man. He's waiting. And the patience we see here is even in the way he looks to see that the world has been restored. He thinks perhaps that God is restoring the earth and he sends out a raven. And the raven, the Bible tells us, goes to and fro. You can imagine it going out from the ark and coming back and going out and coming back. And Noah would think, well, something's happening here because ravens feed on dead flesh. Any of you ever seen ravens by the side of a road? You know this. And so perhaps the waters are starting to subside, but the raven keeps coming back. So what does Noah do? I think he does what you and I would not do. He waits a week. Could you imagine waiting a week in the ark? Perhaps some of you, like me, find it difficult to wait Three to five minutes for a response to an email. I can't believe he hasn't responded yet. Oh, no, not yet. 
he waits an entire week. But then he sends a dove. And the dove goes out and finds no land. And then what does Noah do? He waits another week. And he sends the dove again. And now great promise is found. There's an actual plant, an olive branch. We might even say a significant kind of plant because the olive tree speaks of joy and peace. Perhaps now this is a sign, Noah might say, that God has found peace with the earth. Peace with his people and the waters will subside. I think what I will do is wait another week. And then he sends another dove. Do you see the great patience here of Noah? Do you wonder why he would have this kind of patience? He waits a week. Now four days. Now five days. Not nine days. Seven days. Over and over and over again. Is there anything special about seven? I think what we're seeing here is that not only in the ark, but even in the work of redemption, we are seeing Noah honoring God's seven-day Sabbath principle. It would seem to me that each Sabbath day, each day in which Noah would gather his family together and recount the deeds of the Lord, and that they would sing His praises and offer up prayers in corporate worship together, that as a concluding act to that, they would send out a bird in great hope that God would keep the promises that He had made, that they would see those promises kept. You see, this is the kind of hope that grips the heart of one who is in the hand of Jesus. Do you know that kind of patience? Do you know that kind of hope? This is a great patience. This isn't the kind of patience that makes you wait serenely at a stoplight. This is the kind of patience that in the face of death and danger and misery and heartache says, I will trust the Lord for he is good. The only way you can have this patience is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way your heart can be changed and you can know who God is and why you should trust Him. That you have a ground to trust Him on. This is not a fake kind of hope. This is a hope that we have. Because we know what God has already done in Jesus Christ. And you see, there is an application here too to this for patience that God's work is often... Not as quickly done as we would like it. Isn't that true? We would like everything to be faster. We'd like our sanctification to be faster. We would like harmony to be faster. We would like our Bible knowledge to be gained faster. We would like the sickness to go away faster. We would like the troubles to go away faster. We would like to get out of the bad as quickly as we can. And God says at times, you must wait and trust me. Just as God made Noah wait, God may be making you wait right now. He may be making you wait through a trial that you don't think you can get out from under. But you see... He's the Lord. 
He gives us this great blessing of patience that we might exercise our faith in him and we might trust him all the more. And he rewards faithful, patient trust. Just as he does for Noah. He sends Noah a sign, the sign of the dove. The dove comes back with that olive branch and God sends these kinds of signs to us today. Now, I don't mean that you should go home and expect on your doorstep an olive branch or an oak leaf or a trained dove. Do not expect that. Do not expect a flaming banner in the sky. But yet at the same time, we must understand as biblical reformed Christians that God does indeed speak to us through the actions of this world, through his providence. You do not bump into an old friend by accident. You do not get an encouraging verse on Facebook by accident. God is active in your life. He is showing you that he is with you and he will speak to you in his word and in his creation. He gives us opportunities to trust him, to know him. But God doesn't just restore the world here in hope. He restores the world in knowledge. He doesn't leave us simply hoping. He gives us firm knowledge. One of the things we know from this flood As the waters subside and as Noah comes out and the world is reestablished, that the judgment that God has given is as much about starting over with his covenant people as it is about punishment. Do you understand that? The flood is not just about destroying or punishing the wicked. The flood is about God using his creation. To build up his covenant people. To give them a fresh slate. To give them an opportunity to worship him. To give them an opportunity to see his goodness. And if we understand that in the flood, we will understand that in the judgment to come. You see, the judgment to come is not fearful for those who are in Jesus Christ. The judgment to come is an opportunity for the world to be set straight, the world to be made right, the people of God to be gathered around him to worship him forever. This is the news that we have for others. Do not ever let your gospel only be, you must avoid hell. Hell is real. And you should know about it. And you should flee it. But you have to flee to something. Your gospel is not just do not go to hell. Your gospel is go to Jesus. Go to the new world that Jesus Christ is creating for his people. As brand new and fresh as the world when Noah got out of the ark and he stepped into the mud. We know this. Because God has shown it. You see, God even repeats the kind of newness of this world in verse 17. He says, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. 
This is Genesis 1 and 2 language. The world is being created anew. There is a sense in which Noah is the new Adam, that the world is going to be repopulated, that God has not given up on the world. Have you given up on the world? I fear sometimes we have. We think that the world is not worth saving. We think that culture is not worth redeeming. We think that the church is not worth expanding. We think instead all we need to do is hang on for dear life and hope Jesus comes back before things get worse. But you see, that's not how God works. God works in the midst of his people. Now, he may work in ways that do not seem to bring success on a worldwide scale. But he works through his people, creating a new. He gives them this creation mandate, and again he gives them his word. He says in verse 16, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out everything you have. Is God silent? Not here he isn't. You see, after all of those days of bobbing in the water, all of those days of wondering where they would land, wondering what would happen, wondering what God would do, God at the end does not leave Noah to his own devices. God at the end gives Noah his word and he tells him exactly what to do. And here's a shock. Noah obeys. Do you notice that? Now you think to yourself, well, of course Noah obeys. He wants to get out of the stuffy ark. Wait a minute. Noah is going out into a world that he has no idea what it's like. It ceased to exist. In a sense, that could be very fearful. What sort of mountains are there? There's no GPS. How do I find anything anymore? Rivers are gone. Lakes are formed. What do I do? How does Noah get the courage, if you will, to obey God's word here? I'll tell you. Noah has spent 600 years obeying God. If you want to know whether you can obey God in difficult, tough times, obey God in easy times. Obey God day after day after day. When he speaks to you and he gives you his word, believe it. Every day, every week. And then when Satan attacks, When providences are dark and you need God's word, you will believe it because you have built a foundation of trusting the living God. That's how Noah can come out of the ark. And what happens then to Noah as he comes out of the ark? He sees here a world that is restored to be remade. This is also the way that God works. You remember how he speaks in Joel chapter 2. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Some of you need restoration. You need restoration in your marriages. You need restoration in your families. 
You need restoration in purity and holiness. And you look back and you say, I can never get back all of the things that have gone wrong. And you know what? You're right. There is no time machine. There is no way back music. You cannot. But God promises in His grace that He will restore what has been lost. He can restore your marriage. He can restore your family. He can restore your life. If you trust Him, and you go to Him. And that's, after all, what Noah does at the end. The third thing we see is Noah's response. He goes out of the ark as God has commanded him. Now let's modernize the ark a bit and think about what we might expect. I want you to think in your mind's eye about the last time you took an airplane trip. Now you imagine this as you land back at your destination or perhaps at Bush or at Hobby. What happens? The bump, the jiggling, the big brakes, the noise of the bells saying we've landed, everyone pulling out cell phones, trying to figure out if they've gotten any texts or emails. And then we come to a stop. And then what happens? It's a madhouse. Everybody jumps up to get out in the aisle, to get their stuff, to get off the plane the very first that they can, right? And if you can't because someone in front of you is slow, you complain. I've got to get off this plane. I've been on this plane 45 minutes. I've been on this plane an hour and a half. I've got to get out of here. Could you imagine what would go through Noah's mind? A year he's been on this ark. We could forgive him if the very first thing he did was run out, kiss the ground, breathe the air, and say, Oh, I'm so happy. But he doesn't. That tells us something about Noah and about the work of a child of God. What he does is he gets out of the ark. And the very first thing he does is build an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord. And he takes some of these clean animals that God has told him to bring on the ark. And he begins then to sacrifice. And the word here for sacrifice is a new word. It's not the word that's used in Genesis 4. It's the word that will be used in Leviticus. It describes a burnt offering in which the entirety of the offering is consumed. Noah is completely dedicating this sacrifice to God. He is showing his thankfulness to the Lord for preserving him. Let me give you an illustration from the Bible of what this would be like if Noah acted like we are tempted to act. Do you remember the story of ten lepers? Ten lepers who needed healing. Ten lepers who called out to our Lord Jesus Christ, please help me. And Jesus had mercy on them and he healed them. And what did they all do? They were happy. They ran. They told their families they were gone. Only one came back to say thank you. Only one. That is a heart that is gripped not with the blessing, but with the blesser. Comes back to see Jesus 
because of what he has done. That's what Noah is experiencing here. Gratitude for what the Lord has done. He's showing that he is submitting to God's rule. And there's something else here that Noah understands that we need to understand. He offers a sacrifice, which implies atonement for sin. Now, God has just wiped out all of the wicked, horrible people. Noah knows something that we need to remind ourselves. That if God, in his justice, wiped out all of the drug dens, all of the prostitutes, all of the thieves, all of the liars, all of the cheats, all of the frauds, wiped them out and cleaned up the neighborhood, we would still have sin because we would be there. Noah understands that sin is not just something out there, it's something in here. And he sacrifices. He acknowledges that God is true. God accepts this sacrifice, a sweet aroma, just as Paul tells us that Christ is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God on our behalf who trust in Him. Because you see, that's the last thing that Noah does. He trusts God. God remembered Noah at the beginning of this chapter. Now at the end of this chapter, Noah remembers God. He remembers God now. Young people, Ecclesiastes 12 tells us to remember your Creator in the days of your youth, not later. We remember the Lord in hard times. We remember the Lord when all things seem lost. Do you remember Jonah in the belly of the fish? All is lost, but he remembers God. This is what God does. He reminds us that He is faithful. We see this in the book of Lamentations. When Jeremiah, the prophet of God, was going through great misery, seeing his whole world destroyed, all of Israel taken away. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know that from the hymn. Don't forget verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Is the Lord your portion this morning? Is the Lord all you know or need? Because the greatness of that, the graciousness of that, is when you have the Lord, you have all you need. That's what Noah learned. That's what we will learn. If we trust in the ark that God has given to us, the ark to carry us through the judgment to come, the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that you have shown to us that you are worthy of trust. You are worthy of worship. Lord, bless us this morning. Increase our faith, Lord. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, come down to your people and show us 
Show us we have no hope but you. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.